0: Welcome to the debate at Newsweek. I'm Andrew Tallman. And today we're joined by return guests, uh, Jason Nichols. He is a senior lecturer. uh, Excuse me, Dr. Nichols, we established before the discussion. So uh, Jason is a senior lecturer in the uh, African-American Studies Department at the University of Maryland, College Park, and also other doctor uh, in journalism, Nick Gillespie. He is the editor at large at Reason Magazine and host of the Reason interview with Nick Gillespie. Gentlemen, welcome back.
1: Thank you. And American literature, correct? And American. American literature, yeah. Oh, did I say I, don't even, I am so sorry. I don't even
2: know if they give PhDs in journalism. Yeah, no, we'll uh, should, we'll see
1: if we can get no. you an honorary. Oh, they, you know? they do. They they do indeed. I know some okay. in media and nice. journalism. Okay, I'll buy so
0: um, now we will get to the discussion about the speaker battle because we're in the middle of it right now. Like we just had the fifth vote, and we still don't have a speaker of the House of Representatives. In fact, uh it's I mean it's a fascinating you know what, honestly let's start there. I was going to start with George Santos, but we'll get to him in a second. He can wait. He botched his vote <laughs> by the way. They called on him, he was talking with somebody, he didn't know he was supposed to vote and then they had to go back and get him in the makeup session. But uh we now have five votes in and in all five votes Hakeem Jeffries of New York has been nominated by Pete Aguilar and he's gotten 212 212 212 212. Uh now we've got a you know a shifting landscape where Kevin McCarthy Expected to be the speaker, but expected to face headwinds. He did. He got 203 and then he got 203 and then 202. And now because one representative, uh Victoria Sparks of Indiana, has voted present the last two times today, he's now down to 201. Now, they only need 217 with her voting present. But uh, what yesterday was a vote for Andy Biggs and Jim Jordan became a vote for Jim Jordan. And then today. First time ever, two black gentlemen were nominated from both parties. Byron Donalds of Florida, he got 20 votes both times. And that's where we sit. Uh, Let's start with you, Nick, your thoughts.
2: Uh, You know, first, I want to say it is telling uh, that for Republicans, the most successful and effective Speaker of the House in the 21st century is a convicted child molester, Dennis Hastert. Uh, the, you know, the, uh, the GOP has a terrible track record of House leadership. John Boehner was not good. Uh, Paul Ryan was terrible. He was good and, at crying. Uh, yeah, he's good at crying. But, you know, that's like you drink that much wine and then switch to smoking weed after you leave Congress, you're going to cry. Um, it This is fascinating. Uh, Kevin McCarthy, you know, has been dying to have this job forever, and, and he did everything except To come up with a set of commitments or principles or or leadership abilities that would actually whip his caucus into shape and to have a a united uh unified agenda i you know i say this i'm not a republican i'm not a democrat uh, i'm not a liberal or conservative or progressive i'm a small L libertarian but the what what is most important here it's not the you know the the floundering career of somebody like kevin mccarthy who's the worst kind of careerist politician who was anti-trump and then pro-trump Etc it's we have a major party here that does not have an agenda uh for you know the next two years uh you know and that helps explain why they barely uh you know gained control of the house and uh couldn't gain control of the Senate
0: yeah Matt Gates who is actually my congressman and you know he's the leader of the opposition at this point within the Republican Party uh he said on the floor and then also afterwards yesterday that he asked for if they would if Kevin McCarthy would agree to give him a, a floor vote on a term limits bill, a floor vote on a reform the border from the Texas legislative delegation bill. And also if they would give him a vote on um, oh, um, a balanced budget bill that they would have been willing to vote for McCarthy. And McCarthy couldn't even pull that. Now, uh, apparently the Hill has actually said that McCarthy has made an overture to the Democrats to see if they will vote present. Yeah in order to reduce 433 down to some number that his 201 can top as more than half, uh, rather than working with the Republicans, he'd rather reach out to the Democrats. Jason, is this just popcorn watching time for you? Oh,
1: absolutely. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna redeem John Boehner a little bit. I I, I yeah. think John Boehner was not as bad as, uh, some people think. I think he was one of the few Republicans in the last, Uh, you know, 30 years or so, uh, who was willing to work across the aisle, um, which I think is a good thing. It's a good thing for America, for guy. And he had to sneak into the side of the White House to go and meet with the president, which is insane. So I I would say John Boehner was not as bad uh, as some of the others going back, at least to Newt Gingrich. Um, So... Uh, I, I, I would say that this is an interesting moment in history. I don't think that, uh, Democrats are going to stand down. I think Democrats are going to sit there, uh, particularly when they know what's waiting on the other side, which is a bunch of investigations on COVID, a bunch of investigations on, uh, uh, Hunter Biden and the laptop and all that kind of, you know, ridiculousness. I think that, uh they are not going to give mccarthy what he wants just to you know just to kind of settle things and move forward they're going to make the republicans have to fight this thing out and and uh it doesn't look like your congressman matt gates who is ever the showman i know matt um he's he's not going to going to back down um and and you know what was funny to me was trump endorsed mccarthy on uh truth social and that's right. when I knew he was going to lose because mm-hmm. Trump endorsements have not been going well recently. Yeah. So that was uh, kind of, you know, what I thought. And, and and looking at this whole thing, I think if anything, if anyone should be making an overture, uh, I think it should be Hakeem Jeffries should be going over mm-hmm. and seeing if he can get votes from, you know, 10 or so Republicans. I mean, that'd be the smart
0: thing, right? If he can if he could manage to swing only at this point, what, two hundred and twelve. He's got to pull five Republicans. And if he could somehow in a, you know, sneaky deal, whatever, pull five Republicans with concessions. I mean, he'd be the speaker. And what I guess um, I guess McCarthy has agreed to a deal now that if uh, if five members go for uh, removal, that that would hold. But if he's not the speaker, he can enforce that rule, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's this is really, really interesting. Um, it's incredibly embarrassing for for the Republicans um, and for their caucus. Um, and it's it's interesting when you're seeing the the far right flank of the party. Now, even that's kind of mixed up because you have uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene or Marjorie Taylor, I guess now. Um, who is now, you know, in the in the McCarthy camp, and then she's kind of opposed to Lauren Bobert and and Matt Gates on the other side. It's, it's right. Really- Bobert
0: actually spoke today, and she she was very painfully aware that Trump had said she was wrong and wanted McCarthy to be the speaker. And you know, as, as you say, the people that have kind of switched and uh, Jim Jordan, Jim Jordan, who was the guy who got 20 votes in one of the rounds, stood up yesterday and said, "I don't want the job." To which the defectors said, "Well, that's why we want you." <laughs> You know, know, this
2: does go back to, uh, you know, Gingrich was the last Republican speaker who really controlled the party in a big way. Um, His replacement, you know, his picked handpicked replacement, uh, Bob Livingston had to stand down because of a phone sex scandal. You get Dennis Hastert, who is just a creep. And, you know, just uh, Jason, a pushback on you a little bit. Uh, There was a lot of bipartisan working across the aisle in the early aughts. There were things like all of the Authorizations of use of military force, the Patriot Act, No Child Left Behind, uh, the prescription drug bill. These were disasters, as far as I'm <laughs> concerned. So, like, working across the aisle is not good if what they're doing is terrible. But, you know, since then, even Boehner, he was a better leader. I mean, like Nancy Pelosi, he's a politician who knew how to get things done, but was not really controlling the party. And I think this may be. You know the republican party was going into this election you have a historically you know a very unpopular president most people think the country's going in the wrong direction and they managed to put up such a clown car of candidates that they're where they are now but that's the lagging indicator this is a party that does not have a core and we might want to thank donald trump for set you know for showing that the republican party just does not have any commitments or any principles it needs a major reboot and a reset. I would like to see that happen in a libertarian direction. Um, and maybe the Republicans go back to their, you know, rhetorical gestures towards limited government doing less, but doing it effectively. I'd like to see the Democrats, become, you know, do that too. But the fact of the matter is what we are seeing here is a, a long slide in the Republican party that's been going on, that's been unfolding for decades. Um, and hopefully for the good of the country because the you know democracy a two-party democracy doesn't work well if one of the parties is as bad as what it's doing as the the current Republican party is
0: you know it, w- it was interesting to watch uh you had uh I'm trying to think who it was maybe it was Mike Gallagher in his speech today uh got up and spoke about how hey democracy's messy and you know we're doing this in the open and see we allow for dissent uh which got some cheers and I thought maybe not quite this messy. <laughs> you know, maybe this is not quite the thing we were hoping for. I'm I'm just curious. We're going to move on to George Santos, but I'm, I am just curious if either of you see the end game and look, by the time the podcast posts, we may have a solution, but I, I'm looking at an unsolvable problem at the moment. Jason, what's your prediction here? If you have to go out on a limb and be wrong within a day, what do you think is going to happen?
1: I mean, I think Kevin McCarthy is eventually going to be the speaker. Um, He's going to have to give up a lot, and he's going to have to give up a lot to his right flank, uh, to those 20 people. Um, and, you know, he's, he's going to come in in a very weakened position. He's, he's not going to have the strength of a leader of the party um, in the House. So I, I think he'll eventually get it. And, you know, again, I, I think just as Nick said, a lot of this is about his personal ambition anyway, not as principles. So, I mean, he's going to get what he wants. He's going to come in as a very weak leader. And, um, you know, none of this I think is, is good for, well, I can't say it's not good for America because I think this, this party is, you know, the Republicans right now, uh, if there was a Republican party that was worse possibly than the ones that Nick just mentioned with all of those, uh, Terrible pieces of policy that Nick mentioned, and I agree with him 100 percent on the fact that, you know, there was bipartisan agreement on some really terrible things uh, in in the early 2000s. But uh, I I think this party may be worse, which is really terrifying um, when we know uh, where this could lead and where it has led um, in the last two years. Yeah, it's very
0: interesting. Like you say, I mean, Kevin McCarthy has clearly been waiting for this opportunity kind of his whole life. And now his dream He's house. Uh, Crazy
2: Flick of speakers <laughs> yeah. of the yeah. House.
0: Right? His, his, his dream house is finally on the market and he can't afford it. Yeah. <laughs> he can't get the financing. Nick, what do you think happens if you had to guess? Uh,
2: yeah, I mean, I think he eventually gets it. I would love to see because the speaker of the House uh, doesn't have to be a member of the House. Bring in Justin Amash, the uh, former Republican uh, congressman who became independent and then became actually affiliated with the Libertarian Party. His constant drumbeat is that Congress, and it's the Speaker's fault, whether it's Pelosi or Paul Ryan or whoever, they don't actually debate and discuss and vote on legislation. They vote on preordained conclusions. Congress right. has systematically been giving away its power to the executive branch You know, for, I mean, you could say 200 years, but certainly for the past 30 or 40 years, and it's time for Congress you know, regardless of their ideology, to reclaim the fact that they are the first branch of government, they are the ones, uh, the House in particular, is supposed to do most of the legislating. Maybe we can use this embarrassment, you know, to actually start that discussion and move towards a place where Congress is passing legislation rather than rubber stamping, uh, you know, what the president wants or letting the president decide executive uh, uh, bureaus uh, and the courts.
0: And, you know, the defectors, as are being called among the Republican Party, what they've been looking for more than anything is reform of the process. And, you know, the one point seven trillion dollar omnibus is one of their primary targets. They say the process is broken. Maybe they sort of agree with you for my own prediction. I'm with Jason I think it's likely to wind up being uh, Kevin McCarthy I can't see any other way out of this even though I don't see how we get to that landing point when we come back uh, another embarrassing moment for the Republican Party a guy who got elected and has at least sometimes been casting his vote in this process George Santos who is he really and what should be done about the uh, inaccuracies is the most charitable way to say it Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that when we come back on the debate at Newsweek. Welcome back. Joining me today, I have Jason Nichols and Nick Gillespie on the debate at Newsweek. And oh, uh, has George Santos said anything true that we can prove to this point? I mean, it's amazing some of the things that have been unearthed about him. And, you know, now he's saying, well, I, you know, I'm Catholic, I'm Jewish, I'm not a Jew and my, uh, you know, Four bears didn't actually die in the Holocaust or have to flee the Holocaust. And we've now got a Brazilian fraud investigation trying to find him after allegations of what he did there on top of all of the others. I mean, it's like uh, I know at Newsweek, we had a piece on all of the different things that he has misrepresented, uh, including, you know, He's the first openly elected Republican gay member of Congress, and yet he was married for a couple. Now, that doesn't mean he can't be. People change, but, you know, it's (laughs) it's a bizarre litany of inaccuracies. Um, Jason, you wrote the piece in which you said this is the natural follow on from embracing the Trump candidacy. But from your perspective, George Santos, I mean, do you really think I mean, uh, really honestly, do you really think George Santos is representative of the Republican Party? or what can be done about him i guess
1: i think he's he's definitely representative of magaism and we'll find out if magaism is republicanism you know it has been for the last couple of years it seems like there are uh you know that connection is starting to to wither a little bit but we're not certainly sure what direction the republican party is going to go into um but he certainly is when you, when you look at the fact that Donald Trump told 31,000 confirmed lies over four <laughs> years. You know, I, I mean, this is what they do. And of course, you know, the big one or the big lie uh, about, you know, our elections. And this is, you know, something that I think, um, you know, Democrats need to not focus on George Santos per se, but focus on this pattern. And, and the kind of characters that they're putting into elected office. I mean, this is an embarrassment and a mockery of not just the Republican Party, but I think of the of America. And, and I, when I look at, you know, his uh, you know, the, the whole thing with him being Jewish, um, that's probably the least consequential of his lies. Um, that's, that might be the least, the one I'm least offended by, except for the Holocaust part. It's,
0: of it. it's the easiest one to latch onto because we have the sound clip and it <laughs> right. sounds so absurd, right? right?
1: I'm a proud American Jew. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the, the, the reason I say that is because, you know, for example, um, we know that there's been the, the kind of whataboutism with, um, with, um, Elizabeth Warren. And I can say this, if I had a dollar for every white person that told me they were part Cherokee, you know, I, I, I at least could take you guys to a really fancy dinner,
0: you know, and, and, and I- Me, maybe, I, I hear Nick's a big drinker. So, you know, be careful what you promise.
1: I, I, think, I, I think I can foot the bill. We could we <laughs> get him, get him what, he, what he wants. I mean, when you look at it, there's an entire industry created Uh, To find out about our roots and find out about our ancestry. And if I had a dollar for every white and black person who told me they were part Native American, uh, you know, I'd be I'd be doing pretty well right now. Um, So, you know, I I don't necessarily that one didn't bother me as much as like the Pulse nightclub Mm. uh, situation where he's literally taking people's lives that they lost at the hands of a mass shooter and using it for political gain, like that he had no connection to, you know, and and then, of course, lying about his resume, lying about things he didn't have to lie about. No one cares about what school you went to, you know, Um, but he's lying about being affiliated with with certain companies and, and work that he's done. The lies about the charitable organizations, which, again, is very Trumpian, Um, As well, of course, we know in terms of Trump as well, with Trump, uh, not only with his questionable charitable charitable organizations, but also um, with uh, some of the um, other organizations that he's, you know, said that he was a part of that that weren't necessarily true. The question I
0: guess I have about this is then what do we do? You know, clearly, yeah. I mean, journalists failed. He lied. Citizens didn't do their investigation, even though the hints were out there. There were a couple of places that kind of looked into this stuff. Well, I, and then, you know, and if then I, what gets done, Nick?
2: Yeah, I mean, if I may. And, I, you know, I do want to rehearse some of the lies that leading Democrats have told, not because Santos and I keep want to call him Ron Santo, as if he was a Hall of Fame third baseman for the Chicago <laughs> Cubs, because I want to evacuate this situation. Santos. Is such a liar, um, and and as Jason was saying, over petty things, you know, where you went to college. Maybe that he went to college, I don't even know. But like nobody freaking cares, right? But right. you know, the fact is that Elizabeth Warren was very strategic and lied about, you know, maybe never actually saying oh, yeah, I am Cherokee, but allowing it because it allowed her career to succeed. People like Dick Blumenthal, the senator from. Uh, uh, from Connecticut, lied about serving in Vietnam when it served him. Joe Biden left the 1988 presidential race because it turned out he was plagiarizing the speech of a British, uh, you know, politician, Neil Kinnock. Even to the fact where he was claiming that he was like Kinnock, you know, he, he had relatives who were coal miners and things like that. It all of this stuff matters. Uh, Santos is in a league of his own, and I think we need to ask ourselves, what has happened where politicians are acting this way? What happens when we go from high trust to low trust in basic, basic reality talking points? We're in a bad place. That is huge. And we need to hold politicians to higher standards. I think Santos should be forced out by the Republicans. They should be like, you know, what the hell? They should be putting him on a figurative ice flow and just getting him the hell out of Congress. Having said that, as a journalist. I want to point out that journalists are idiots. Like, how the hell did it take this long to do the most basic fact-checking of a candidate nobody had ever heard? And none of this is difficult to find out. And I think, as much as anything else, uh, you know, this is also a dark mark on on journalism. And you know, we need to we we are starved for common facts that people will agree to and say, so, you know what? Yeah, this is the situation. Now, let's disagree how we fix it or how we address it, how we make it better, how we make it worse, whatever. But for God's sake, journalists, you know, let's uh, let's start doing our jobs for a change.
0: Yeah, it seems like this catastrophic across the board systems failure, right? Like, you know, journalists didn't really do what they were supposed to do. I mean, you would think oppo research you know, would have turned this up. Yeah, they did not. Flipping a, yeah. a I I mean, Democrat for a Republican no. seat would have raised some awareness. Yeah. You know, no. let's look into a couple of these claims. And you need you know,
2: Roger Stone or somebody. I mean, like you need <laughs> yeah. somebody who's at least committed to, you know,
0: Carl Rove <laughs> or
1: something. Yeah. I mean,
0: so, 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 So I think one of the I think Jason is on the right track here in the you know, that the Republicans in this part, Republicans have been pretty quiet about this. Which I think is unfortunate. Uh, you know, I'm a Republican, and I have no problem saying that this is outrageous, scandalous behavior. I'm not sure about the remedy personally, because you know, can you refuse to seat him? I don't know. And by the way, he's voting for McCarthy, so we know McCarthy is not willing to shed any votes in the effort <laughs> oh, to become speaker. So you know, we know that we know that's a play.
2: Another thing, Jason said that I think is really on point here. Uh, when you said, you know, Republicans are being quiet about this. Republicans are also being quiet about the absolutely false claims by Trump and a lot of MAGA Republicans about election fraud costing the election. Yes, there's you know scattered amounts of election fraud in every election, things like that. No, there is no reason to believe the 2020 election or the 2016 election or the 2004 election, where uh, you know a lot of Democrats were bitching and moaning about uh, you know uh, results in Ohio. There's nothing to show that election fraud through this election. And I think the, the lack of ability on the Republican Party to hold itself accountable is really disastrous because this is also true that those candidates, the MAGA candidates by and large, not completely, but mostly who were pushing election fraud narratives lost. Um, so it doesn't even make sense just from the pragmatic base of like basis of, I want to be in the party that's running the show. You know, come out. Well, against uh, so so
0: I think plans. I think on that, my, my diagnosis of this as somebody who is no problem saying that Joe Biden won the election and that though I still have some questions, I'm not concerned about my questions. I, You know, I'm I hear a lot of people that yeah. I like and admire and respect feel the need to feel to stay quiet. Right. They you know, they don't agree with the election stealing narrative, but they don't really want to come out and say that the election was okay because they're concerned about the people who are going to, you know, have bought into that narrative. Now, I disagree with that. I think you ought to say what is true and you ought to stand for what is true because not only good journalism, but just, you know, being a decent citizen. Uh, But that's the fear is, yes, the uh, election fraud candidates may not win. But what happens to the to the people who come out and say, no, Trump's completely wrong. And I completely disagree with him about this particular claim. Well, we haven't really tested that platform and i I suspect that platform has, has consequences for some people. We're going to take a, a quick break. And when we come back, I want to get your guys thought on a report that just came out of China about more troubles with the iPhones. Uh, again, Apple and worker conditions, something that has become whether you believe the history or not has certainly become a a lingering albatross around the neck of this major company. So much so that it's taken for granted in SNL jokes that they make at their expense. We'll come back on the debate.
3: Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are.
0: Welcome back to the debate at Newsweek Uh, China, iPhones and Apple. (laughs) It seems like there's this longstanding belief uh, by everybody That there's worker abuse that, you know, it's as I said before the break, it's the butt of jokes on SNL and everywhere else that they, you know, the child workers, all this kind of stuff. The newest one is a little bit more nuanced than that about their uh, failure to pay their employees properly. And when a stink is made about it, then maybe they take action. But that Foxconn is not doing right by the workers. And I think most people in America, even Apple users, say, eh, I like my Apple, uh, Nick, what's your take on this? Uh,
2: I think that, uh, if people are committed to, uh, you know, kind of, uh, responsibly sourced coffee and beer and wine and other products, they should be exerting pressure on the companies that make them, or, you know, the people who sell the products that they want. Um, having said that, I also think these things always need to be looked at in terms of an international context. Uh, this was also true of the you know the workers who built the uh, the World Cup stadiums in Qatar. There's a very clear and and powerful narrative that they were effectively slave workers or you know indentured servants. Uh, there is also a compelling counter narrative that the people you know the the people who were working there were kind of the lucky ones, given the larger context of where they're from and what they were doing. So it's you know I I think that one of the great things about capitalism. Is that it generally increases standards of living across the world for people who make stuff and people who buy stuff. But as important, it also allows for information, back, you know, uh, feedback loops, so that you can, if you care about the way workers are treated in a particular place, you can make that known, and you can make that known, you know, at the Apple Store, uh, you know, across the street from the Plaza Hotel in Manhattan, and start working it back way. I think that makes sense, but. I also worry a lot of the times this gets uh, kind of looped into a progressive uh, uh, kind of narrative where essentially if there are any uh, kind of uh, you know wage differentials or working condition differentials anywhere in the world, we have to stop that. And that's simply not the way that development works. So this is a thorny question. I don't use Apple products, um, partly because I don't like the smugness that comes with the whole Apple uh, kind of universe of goods. I think people who are into Apple products who are disturbed by these things should be making it, you know, uh, making Tim Cook's life a little bit more miserable as as a starting point.
0: Yeah, I, I have been an advocate that capitalism, one of the great things to me about capitalism is that it very aggressively separates between the product or service on the one hand And the values, ethics, religion, norms, advocacy of the people making the product or the service. It's why I think that all these efforts to punish companies for their views and punish people for their views are very anti-capitalist because I don't care who's making it as long as the product is good. That said, capitalism presupposes a relatively equal playing field. And if one country is treating its workers as you know in all the horrible ways that we know happens well that's no longer a competitive playing field and i'm not simply paying for a product i'm playing for paying for a product that's made unethically in a way that's not fair but jason your take on this whole issue with apple the phones foxconn china
1: so first of all i think you know when we look at this i think most americans don't think about the supply chain of you know where their products are coming from. So. I think a lot of people don't think about what's going on in China. Was it you, you know, was this ethically made or ethically sourced? The only time we ever think about that, like I'm thinking of like ethos water and things like that is when they make it part of their marketing, um, that they do this ethically, but otherwise, you know, we eat our food, we wear our clothes, uh, we put on our Nike shoes, we go running, we do all of that. And we don't necessarily, uh, hone in on those kinds of practices. I think one of the things that, that I think is slightly off the subject, but um, that is kind of bringing all of this, um, you know, and showing a little bit of hypocrisy on some Americans' part is, you know, a lot of people were upset with, you know, one of my favorite athletes, LeBron James, you know, for some of the things that he said, you know, in defense against Daryl Morey and in defense of, of China. But now, all of a sudden, those same people, their hero is Elon Musk, who works with just about every authoritarian government, you know, uh, major authoritarian government in the world, you know, including the Chinese uh, in in some of the regions that are most problematic in China. Um, Now,
0: surely, Jason you're not alleging that some Americans don't have a rigorously worked out system of beliefs that manifests consistently across all topics. Right? You, I know no. you're not alleging that.
1: Oh, I, I would never insult the American people that way. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, this is um, something we need to think about. And one of the things that I'll say, uh, you know, as we expect our government to do so, certain things, I remember sitting at a lecture once where a woman was talking about sweatshops in Asia. Mm -hmm. And I was appalled at what I was hearing and what I was seeing. And I asked her, I think I was a graduate student at the time, a young grad student. And I said, you know, what can I do? You know, what brand should I, you know, avoid? And I'll never forget this like cheeky response that this professor gave me. She said, well, you're gonna be walking around naked. Mm -hmm. You know, so, you know, Get your body temperature up, you know, because <laughs> you're going to be walking around nude. So I think one, when, if we're going to focus on this, we have to focus on, on, on from a policy level, not an individual, uh, you know, saying, hey, I won't wear this sweatshirt or I won't wear these shoes. Um, a lot of times, particularly when we're dealing with uh, things that are happening uh, further along down the supply chain. Now, if it's Starbucks not giving you know, health care to its workers, Yeah, you can go to Dunkin' Donuts or you can make your own coffee, you know, um, as some form of protest. But when we're talking about going farther down the supply chain, I think it's just it's unreasonable to think that Americans are going to do that. And I think it should happen from a policy level.
2: I do. You know, by by the same token, you mentioned Nike. Uh, Nike is a brand that, you know, in the in the 90s, in particular, the, uh, you know, kind of sweatshop question became a huge one. And Nike was, you know, the, uh, you know, took on a ton of consumer boycotts and negative, uh, uh, you know, negative press, and they changed their business practices. It doesn't mean that people making shoes in Bangladesh or make it, you know, are getting the same wage as people, people in Beaverton, Oregon or something, but um, there, it is an effective measure um, or it can be. I agree with you more broadly. What's interesting about the large question of something happening in a place like China. China is a country which is authoritarian, and they exact different levels of, um, you know, of kind of tribute from all of the foreign con- companies and foreign countries that invest there, and it makes it a little bit more difficult. I do think, you know, the the bigger picture item uh, or bigger picture here is also to look at our wages, our living standards, um, our, you know, things like that, increasing or decreasing. And it's clear overall, you know, engaging more people in trade, even when it seems like it's lopsided, that is what leads to long-term productivity gains and increases in the standard of living. South Korea, you know, until the seventies was basically had a living standard that was similar to North Korea. The difference there among many others, but a very important one is that it is part of an international trading system. And when you do that, you start to, you know, You're not just exporting goods; you're also importing the values of the companies that do business there. And I think it's important, you know. And I say this as as a a defender of capitalism, of global capitalism. You know, we need to make it clear that uh, you know we want our products to be you know well made. We want them to be inexpensive, blah blah blah. But we also want them to be made in a way that doesn't you know it doesn't make us throw up the food that we're eating when we find out how it's actually being produced.
0: You know, you made a very interesting comment in your first uh, uh, response to this question, Nick, where you were talking about, you know, for the Qataris that, you know, the ones who got the slave labor jobs were actually the better ones off, you know, and, you know, maybe in this particular region of China, you know, the uh, the people who are who have the terrible jobs are actually the better off ones. And, you know, that's always the paradox of these developing nations, not that China is developing, but is the the awful thing that we would never allow to happen in our backyards here is actually the the lifesaver for some of them. And as you say, this winds up being a trade-off long-term in terms of values and what gets exported in. I'm very reluctant to say this. I hate brand new ideas that I've never heard vetted before, but at the risk of endorsing a government solution, is it not possible to assign a number to the advantages that unethical labor practices are giving to products made in countries where they don't enforce these rules? Can we not impose a you know, 84 percent tariff on things that come from China because we know that's their competitive advantage in underpaying their workers or from anywhere in the country. It seems like the federal government would seem to hear actually be in their element that they could say to the American consumer, you know, we know you want your cheaper products uh, from China, but guess what? They don't come cheap anymore because this is how uncompetitive uh, this is the percent benefit they get from being uncompetitive. And we're just going to apply that as a tax. That's the price of doing business in the American market. These seem like economically accessible numbers. Am I naive in thinking this could be done that way? Jason, I oh, so, oh, Nick, go ahead. You jumped in first. Oh, I, I'll
2: just very briefly. Yeah, I think you are being uh, naive and outstanding that it would be used for anything other than Uh, you know, politically motivated and politically connected interests to uh, lower their price and raise the price of their competitors goods. We see that all the time already. Um, This is why trade policy is best, uh, you know, done as little as possible.
0: Jason, similarly, Andrew's being naive. It's possible. It does happen occasionally.
1: No, I I don't think you're you're being naive. And I I expected that answer from Nick, him being a libertarian, uh, you know, um, and, you know, he's being a very good libertarian and saying that I, I disagree. I think that, you know, government does have a role in trade. Mm-hmm. Government does have a role in markets. Um, and I think if, uh, you know, I, I think the, the one question that I think I would agree with Nick on is where's the line? That, that's my thing. It's like, yeah. what, what is ethical? Is it the United States standard? Because I, I don't think that, you know, that really will hold up. Um, I think, you know, if if the the alternative is protectionism, then then I'm really getting closer to Nick there, because I, I don't think protectionism in, in this century is going to be good for anybody, including the United States of America. Um, but I do think we have leverage. We do have leverage in, in foreign markets and we can say, hey, do this this way and we'll buy your products as the, lar- the world's largest consumer or we won't. And or we're going to we're going to charge you more in order to import it. And I think that is the leverage we have, but it's a balancing act. And I agree with Nick on, on that regard that, um you know, we, number one, we would have to establish a line so that it's not, you know, used by people with certain interests in order to, you know, let their products in and, and leave other products out. Um, but, I, I you know, again, I, I'm a believer in. You know, in government and in government reforms, you know, as, as an African-American, like, I don't know how you cannot believe in government and sometimes big government because it solved a lot of problems that the market couldn't solve, you know, like segregation. Like Yeah, you know, I, I
2: would like, actually, I mean, on that point, I think the federal government solved problems that local governments were maintaining, right? So I... Yeah. I, I don't disagree. I'm, not, I'm a libertarian. I'm not an anarchist. And and a lot
0: and a lot of those problems uh, would be the labor condition kinds of problems that we're talking mm-hmm. about. Right. That wasn't going to get solved. The 40 hour work week, for example, and, you know, underpaying people who are functioning as managers, but not getting paid as I mean, all of that stuff. Yeah. These are things that seems like the federal government does OK at. I want to mm-hmm. switch gears here for a second, just uh, completely because a really awful thing happened this week in a game that was highly touted as being one of the best games of the season. Obviously, the Bills-Buffs, uh, the the, uh, the Bills-Bengals game on Monday, we get a quarter, almost not even a quarter into the game, and all of a sudden you have this horrifically unexpected injury where DeMar Hamlin has to be given CPR on the field for several minutes. I mean, they cut off his uniform in order to save his life because he had just this freak heart attack that nobody can explain. And then for several minutes, I mean, almost an hour, you had ESPN was talking about, well, is the game going to continue? Troy Aikman and Joe Buck seemed to think, yes, that they were going to get five minutes to warm up again and get going again. The game was uh, suspended and then postponed. Ultimately, they're likely to replay it. We still don't know quite when that's going to happen. Everybody seems to think that this was exactly the right decision, but there was a time period during the game when it wasn't obvious that that's what's going to happen. Jason, let's start with you. And I don't know how deeply you guys are uh, as far as football fans or sports fans in general, but did they ultimately make the right call? Was it weird for them to even wait any amount of time to say, no, this is what needs to be done? What's your take on this?
1: So I, I have <laughs> I'm, I'm going to try and keep this as brief as possible because I could I could have literally talked for a half an hour uh, just about this. Um, I think one of the things that we have to think about when we're we're talking about that catastrophic injury um number one is that the most difficult part for fans to accept is that football is a very dangerous game you know um and that's that's just the reality of it there's you know people are trying to float all kinds of conspiracies uh about why this happened but the bottom line is it's a dangerous dangerous game and i'm saying that as someone who played in middle school played in high school you know, played might be a stretch. I was on the team. Uh, but, you know, uh, I think we need to first acknowledge that as, as a society, that this is dangerous. Now, going into that, I think that there need to be reforms with the NFL. It really upset me that the NFL was patting itself on the back. Um, and by the way, we've seen catastrophic injuries and the game continued. I remember, right. uh, you know, I'm, I'm, Nick probably remembers this. There was a guy named Mike Utley. Uh, who played for the Detroit Lions, who who severed his spine on the field, and the game continued. They played the rest of that game, if I'm not mistaken. So um, I, I think that's why Troy Aikman and, and Joe Buck were like, yeah, this is going to keep going because, you know, they don't stop this kind of thing when they've got a big audience. Um, we are uh, fortunate that they made the right decision to stop this game, to postpone it. You know, ultimately, they may even cancel it. Um, I don't think it's, it's necessary to, to play this game. Um, but I think one of the things we also need to think about with the NFL and their response to this is people need long-term health care. People need guaranteed contracts. And I, I've, I've been telling all of my friends who are, like, all excited about their sons playing football, and I have a son, <clears throat> you know, and my thing is, we, I, I'm, I tell them all the time, I'm like, hey, if your son is somebody who's going to be able to bench press 225 pounds 25 times and run a 4-5, or five, he should play baseball. You know, baseball is the sport that yeah. they should play because football, number one, is incredibly dangerous. If he gets into the NFL, they're going to do whatever they can unless he's a big star to cut him off before they have to pay him a pension, which is three seasons. Yeah. So you get people like DeMar, who literally played two seasons. He's not eligible for a pension. It may need long-term care. And even if you get a pension, it doesn't kick in until you're 55. So we need to, to really, the NFL, which makes more money than, you know, than God, because you know, uh, God doesn't make money, but you know, the, the NFL that makes this enormous amount of money, they need to start thinking about compensating players And not just the star players, we all get these, you hear about, oh, this quarterback, you know, star quarterback Dak Prescott gets this huge contract, but this kid who fought his way onto a roster, you know, I've had some of them who who have ended up, you know, indigent, you know, uh, within a couple of years.
0: Even you know, if they made great money, even you know, because they you know, they're not they're not accustomed to handling the, it. The you know, NFL has you know, happened. Nick, go ahead.
2: Yeah, the the NFL has a terrible track record of uh, you know of treating its you know its key employees or the the people who make it possible poorly. I think it's great. You know, the uh, at Reason Magazine years ago, my colleague Matt Welch uh, wrote a great story about how free agency really revolutionized a lot of the sports stuff. And it started directing the money where it belongs at the athletes who are filling the seats uh, and things like that. The NFL has a long way to go in treating its workers fairly. And I think the players union and whatnot needs to step up because they're also kind of idiots oftentimes uh, because they don't want to upset, you know, they don't want to kill the golden goose. I think what this, um, you know, what this incident is going to do is accelerate the move away from football football has already been losing um, a ground as a popular sport i lived for many years in rural ohio and um increasing, you know which is a m- massive football state. the peewee leagues and then you know the middle school teams and the the freshman teams at high school were starved for players cuz kids were playing other sports boys were playing other sports partly because football is violent and i think this is going to accelerate that trend and it makes sense because You know, you get to a point, and it's not, it doesn't mean everybody who plays it is, you know, was stupid or made a mistake, but like you get to a point in the same way that boxing is just no longer in the zeitgeist the way it was 50 years ago. I think in 50 years, uh, we will be looking at a world in which football, as we know it, is pretty much gone. And it's exactly because of these reasons, and even more the stuff Jason was talking about, that the players at the very highest level have careers that average, you know, three years and their bodies are destroyed their minds are destroyed um you know so uh, and
0: they they're, and they're and, trying to play that lottery right they're trying to play yeah. the i hope i can get through far enough to make enough money where i can you know be comfortable forever and it it just doesn't pay that way for most people yeah i mean we're seeing the popularity of youth soccer now which though americans love to complain about it is certainly growing by leaps and bounds shoot pickleball for goodness sakes you know what i mean it's not a competitive professional although it does exist but you're seeing this alternative and I, I think this decision by the nfl probably was shaped heavily by all of the concussion protocol stuff mm-hmm. if this had happened you know even five years ago there would have been no question and they would have played the game what's yeah.
1: <laughs> what so, that jason so I, I was saying that they they lied about the concussion yeah. issues for a long oh, right. time, But I mean, right. the, the changes,
0: but the fact that they're they feel the need to respond to that concern now, you know, is I mean, also I mean, what drove yeah. this decision.
1: And, and it took all these whistleblowers to make it happen. And, right. and as a matter of fact, they will be uh,
2: dragged into doing the right thing ultimately. Right?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's it's unbelievable how they have, and as a matter of fact, for the money that they have set aside to pay. People who qualify, I think I I saw something where uh, 60% of the claims for CTE, 60% of them qualify and they've only paid out 6% of those, Mm. you know? So again, I, I think the NFL is about its bottom line. They're about the shield. They're not about players. They're not about player safety. They're not about player health. They're not about any of that, you know? And we see, as a matter of fact, even with the CTE stuff, they were trying to use racial pseudoscience in order to deny paying black players, because they said that they didn't have the same, you know, mental capacity. I mean, it was just absurd, the things that they were doing in order to save a buck. Um, And we see now, even, you know, with all of these CBA negotiations and, you know, the Players Association, which I think a lot of times is kind of weak. You know, they're they're trying to pay less into the people's long term health care. And I understand why a lot of young African-American guys are going out and playing football instead of baseball, to be honest. Number one, baseball, you have to start really young Um, and, you know, maybe there aren't the leagues in certain areas that there used to be. There's not the investment. Why? Because Major League Baseball can get cheaper players from Latin America and investing in Latin America. Uh, and I, I think if we started to actually, you know, understand why it is, you know, that people are going towards football is because football, you do two years in college, you can come out and get paid and buy your mom a house when you're 20 baseball. And you, you didn't have, have, have to pay for the college the for, yeah. for 11 years, like Andre yeah. Dawson. And then you're 30 before you can actually cash in on your talents. Now your career is going to last longer. You're going to probably make more money, but, uh, you know, I understand why people are are driving in that direction, but I don't think the NFL deserves the talent that it gets. And I'm saying that as a football fan, I'm trying to get away from being a football fan. And and I'll
2: add that that is, uh, you know, we all you know, uh, you know, all of us who watch football, um, you know, are part of the problem here too. Uh,
0: I remember, you know, there was a moment. We're we're the consumers. We're the folks uh, who haven't been making enough demand for the change. Right.
2: Yeah. And when Howard Cosell, uh, you know, the old uh, late uh, sportscast broadcaster was, you know, heavily identified with boxing, actually stopped calling boxing matches because after he'd seen too much damage done, Um, you know, we need more moments like that or, That is part of what's going to take a shift away from football. And, you know, 120 years ago, this was when college football kind of emerged. Um, And, you know, there were these questions being raised and uh, Teddy Roosevelt, actually as president, stepped in and demanded a bunch of changes and things like that. We're way, way past that because, I mean, the game will have to fundamentally change if it is not going to destroy, you know, the young people. And as Jason is talking about, you know, particularly uh, people of color or men of color who are getting destroyed by this system, um, you know, there's a lot to change. And this also is something kind of like consumer demand. Uh, you know, if we demand it you know, maybe that'll be uh, one other way to kind of jumpstart a change.
0: Gentlemen, it's been fantastic. I mean, we didn't even get time to do our fun topic, but next time we will. Nick Gillespie, Jason Nichols. Gentlemen, thank you so much for an excellent conversation. I know I was uh, I learned a lot and I was provoked to think quite a bit about it. But thank you so much for joining us on The Debate at Newsweek.
1: Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.
0: Until next time, I'm Andrew Tallman, and this is The Debate at Newsweek.